This is Yuri Toroptsov, and you're listening to Image is Psyche, a podcast dedicated to our fantasy lives. I am a visual artist and a certified professional coach in Paris. I'm also what you might call a Jungian enthusiast. Enthusiast as in inspired. The title of this podcast is a tribute to Carl Jung, a Swiss psychiatrist and the creator of analytical psychology. In his commentary to Richard Wilhelm's Secret of the Golden Flower, Jung writes, It is as if we forgot that everything of which we are conscious is an image. And that image is psyche. According to Jung, our psyche constantly creates images. That's how she lives and breathes us. Fantasies and dreams are examples of it. And that all speaks to me very much. As a visual artist, I create my own images. And as a professional coach, I work with images created by my clients. With this podcast, Using the Jungian lens, I'd like to explore the stories that stimulate imagination. I've never done podcasting before, so there's a lot to learn, so please bear with me. This inaugural episode is called House as Image of the Self. I hope you enjoy it. During the past two years, many of us were forced to redefine our notions of what makes a house. We now spend more time in our places than ever before. As a result of this, some people introduce changes to their existing houses or apartments to be able to accommodate new needs, while others took a more drastic approach and decided to seize the moment and build a house of their needs or maybe even a house of their dreams. The house of Carl Jung in Zurich is an example of such reflection. Apart from being a comfortable place for a family of five, Jung's house is also an image of Jung's fundamental concepts and ideas. I am looking at a sepia-tone photograph dated 1910. A long and dark driveway covered with trees and bushes blocking the sky from all sides leads to a castle with a tower basking in the sun. A small female figure wearing a long white dress and a hat is standing by the front door of the castle looking into the dark driveway. This image makes me think of the illustration by the French artist Gustave Doré to Charles Perrault's fairy tale, The Sleeping Beauty. Yet it's not a fairy tale castle. It's a photo of a family house of Carl Gustav Jung. I'm on a train to Zurich. It's a four-hour ride from Paris. Travel in the times of a global pandemic isn't easy. 
There are travel restrictions in place both in France and in Switzerland, but I really wanted to do this trip. I reserved a spot to visit the house of Carl Jung in Kusnacht, that fairy tale castle with the tower from the sepia tone photograph. My first encounter with Jung dates back to 2003. I was already in Paris and I was going through a tough moment in my life. I was leaving an office job to become an artist. It was a difficult transition. I remember walking into an English bookstore at the Place de la Concorde without any special purpose. I climbed up the stairs and found myself in psychology section. I picked one book from the shelf and it was Jung's Memories, Dreams, Reflections, his autobiography co-written with Aniela Jaffe. I read it in one or two days. That book just rang a bell with me. First of all, it's a great piece of storytelling. And then it spoke to me on so many other levels. One of the messages from the book that stuck with me was that we are not one but many things. And that was a timely message I needed to hear. Since then I began reading Jung's books attending study groups, lectures, and conferences. And more importantly, I began writing down my dreams. I also did a year of Jungian analysis, which is not a lot, but it certainly served an initiation into a personal analytical work. Kusnacht. Throughout his life, Jung was a builder, marking in stone stages of his own maturing psyche. His family house in Kusnacht is undoubtedly one such milestone. Jung writes, My mother took me to visit friends, who had a castle on Lake Constance. I could not be dragged away from the water. The sun glistened on the water. The lake stretched away and away into the distance. This expanse of water was an inconceivable pleasure to me, an incomparable splendor. At that time the idea became fixed in my mind that I must live near a lake. Without water, I thought, nobody could live at all. Jung will have to wait till 1907 before he could have an opportunity to build the house. Jung was an assistant medical director at Burghalsley, a mental hospital in Zurich, and could not afford to build a house of his dreams. It's Jung's wife Emma who came into considerable wealth when her father died prematurely. I am in Kusnacht, a suburb of Zurich only 10-15 minutes away by train from Zurich Central Station. This is where Carl Jung and his wife Emma Rauschenbach built their house from scratch. In 1907, they bought a plot of land on the banks of Lake Zurich. Two years and one day later, they moved into their new home. Jung was very involved in the design of the house. He had a rather clear understanding of what he wanted. In addition to being a comfortable home for a growing family, the Jungs had already three children at the time. The house should be by the water, have a tower, a cellar, 
a library and a consulting room. These were important points for Jung. Jung's first designs reveal a medieval and Baroque-inspired buildings. He approached the building of a new house as a creative and symbolic task. It was an extension of his ideas that he communicated to the house architect. House as a symbol, which has a rich archetypal meaning, appeared in many of Jung's dreams. In his autobiography, Jung credits a dream featuring a house as a prelude to his formulation of the concept of the collective unconscious. He dreamt of his house with a furnished salon located in the upper floor, a long, uninhabited ground floor in medieval style, then the Roman cellar, and finally the prehistoric cave. Jung writes, it was plain to me that the house represented a kind of image of the psyche, that is to say, of my then state of consciousness, with unconscious additions. Consciousness was represented by the salon. It had an inhabited atmosphere, in spite of the antiquated style. The ground floor stood for the first level of the unconscious. The deeper I went, the more alien and the darker the scene became. In the cave, I discovered remains of a primitive culture, that is, the world of the primitive man within myself, a world which can scarcely be reached or illuminated by consciousness. It is striking how the description of the house in Jung's dream resembles Jung's actual house. It wasn't the only time Jung's own dream made references to houses. In another instance, he had a series of dreams in which he saw a house or a wing standing beside his own, of which he didn't know anything. Finally, in a follow-up dream, he reached the other wing to discover a wonderful library dating from the 16th and 17th centuries. Some 15 years later, Jung had assembled a library like that in his house in Kusnacht. A house as an image of self, another of Jung's concept. The self expresses the unity of the personality as a whole, the archetype of wholeness. It's a regulating center of the psyche, a transpersonal power that transcends the ego. Two twenty-eight Zestrasse, that long and recognizable driveway leading to the front entrance. It's an impressive, not to say intimidating, walk. There might be practical reasons for such a long driveway. Zestrasse is a wide road with a lot of traffic. Once you brave the long driveway, you arrive directly to an equally impressive house entrance. The stone tablet above the entrance reads in Latin, in 1908, 
Carl Gustav Jung and his wife Emma Rauschenbach built this house in a cheerful, tranquil place. The inscription on the lintel, also in Latin, reads Called or uncalled, God will be present. This motto, borrowed from the oracle at Delphi, will follow Jung all his life. He reproduced it at his tower in Bollingen. It is also engraved on Jung's tombstone. There's only one entrance to the house, meaning that Jung's family members, guests and patients were all arriving one and the same way. They rang one and the same bell. The tour of the house was scheduled for 1.30 p.m. I was 10 minutes early. There was already a German-speaking couple standing in front of the door. They had the privilege to ring the bell. A young woman in her mid-twenties opened the green door from the inside. Hello. The tour will start in 10 minutes. Could you please wait outside? You may go visit the gardens in the meantime. That was a message to all of us outside, waiting to get in. We were early. And we were in Switzerland, where being on time is not a figure of speech. As I already mentioned, Zestrasse is a main road in Kusnacht. Jung's house, though, is conveniently located away from the road. The house is surrounded by vegetation from all sides. The side of the lake is very private. One immediately feels shielded from street noises. We're still outside the house, but in the privacy of a back garden, in the presence of the lake, and the water. The waterfront is occupied by a boathouse. Jung was an avid yachtsman. He used to sail from his house to Bollingen quite often. On the opposite side, there's a curious little hut or a garden room. In house design papers, Jung called it Cabana on the Lake. Barbara Hanna said that in summer, in good weather, Jung liked to analyze in the garden room directly on the lake. I approached the garden room and looked through the dusty windows covered with cobwebs. Inside, standing in the middle, there was a small square table the size of tables in Parisian cafes, and a wooden bench on the left side. Simple red and white waffle curtains adoring all windows. A feeling that time got suspended inside. I can only imagine all what was said in here. Right next to the garden room, there's a big evergreen tree, which serves a backdrop to a stone statue. It's a figure of a man with seven arms. Jung called him Atma Victu, the breath of life. The guided tour started on time. 
Photos were not allowed inside the house. A lady from the Young Foundation, assisted by two young people, conducted the tour. We were eight adults and a boy of six, accompanied by his parents. We were given a quick presentation on the ground floor, and then they took us for a 15-minute tour, first of Jung's library, and then of his consulting room. For Jung, his library was a very important place, a heart of the house. That is the library he once dreamed of. So to be there was a special treat. The guide said that a smell of Jung's tobacco pipe still lingers in the room 60 years later. Unfortunately, due to COVID protocol, they regularly open windows in the library, so the smell is hard to catch these days. Books, lots of books, all arranged on bookshelves as Jung originally had them. Carpets covering the floor, two medium-sized portraits of Jung's father and grandfather on a wall opposite the desk, art objects from different cultures. It's a reasonably bright room, very comfortable, even cozy. However, Jung didn't like it when it was too warm in the room. He was perfectly happy at a temperature considerably below 15 degrees centigrade, according to Barbara Hanna. In general, Jung's house conforms to a house with medical practice, a type that became known towards the end of the 19th century. The difference is, though, that Jung chose to have his consulting room upstairs instead of a commonly used ground floor. The consulting room, or as Jung called it, analysis locus, is in fact a part of Jung's library. In a letter to the house architect, who was also Jung's cousin, Jung wrote, I need a space that is completely closed off for my psychoanalysis. Otherwise, I'll have to oust my wife from the library where she has to work. In fact, the consulting room is a very private, almost secret space hidden among the thousands of volumes of library knowledge. It's a room within a room, an alchemical chamber. In it, more books, a desk and Jung's armchair. I was surprised how dim Jung's consulting room was. Timid winter sunlight was squeezing in through three windows. The tops of those three windows were decorated with three circular stained glasses, which are copies of stained glass work from Königsfelden. Those three stained glass circles literally shone like stars in the sky. They were so prominent. I wonder what effect they had on Jung's patients. It must be something special to face those biblical scenes, flagellation, crucifixion and the entombment, each session. Those images must have had an impact of their own. 
There was also a lamp on Jung's desk, which gave warm yellow light. Looking at the windows, I wondered if the famous golden scarab synchronicity occurred here, or was it in the garden room? In Memories, Dreams, Reflections, Jung speaks of a patient whose analysis hit a snag because of the patient's exceedingly rationalist attitude. Jung was hoping that something unexpected and irrational would happen to break the shell. So the patient was telling Jung of her dream last night. She dreamed of a precious piece of jewelry in the shape of a golden scarab. At this very moment, Jung heard tapping on the window. It was a rose chafer, a beetle resembling very much the golden scarab. Jung opened the window, caught the beetle, and handed it to the patient, saying, Here is your scarab. The link between the dream world of the patient and the outside world was established. And then there was the patient's chair. I noticed that the seat of Jung's own armchair and the seat of the patient's chair were dressed in the same or very similar fabric. This is very Jungian, in fact. In Jungian analysis, the patient or analysand is facing the analyst. Jung viewed this relationship as a two-person journey into the unknown. There's an interesting photograph of Jung's consulting room dated 1909, shortly after he installed his private psychoanalytical practice in his new home. In the photograph, we see both a patient's couch and an armchair standing in front of the couch. In 1909, Jung was still in contact with Freud, whose method implied the use of a couch by the patient. It is possible to imagine, though, that Jung was already experimenting with seating the patient in an armchair which would facilitate a face-to-face -face dialogue. I would have loved to try Jung's patient's chair. I didn't dare to ask the guide about that. She was so insistent about us not touching anything, which is of course understandable. The funny thing is that the boy of six in our group spontaneously climbed into the patient's chair and sat in it while listening to the guide speaking. It gave me a smile. A new generation of patients in the making, with his mother by his side, I thought. Jung insisted on having a tower in their new house, even though the architect wasn't so sure about it in the beginning. It's a stairwell tower with a baroque portal, and it's the most foreign element to the Zurich lake-style architecture. It's the most visible element on the facade. 
The tower is a rather grand gesture, reminiscent of upper-class villa architecture. On the one hand, its presence can be interpreted as a symbol of status or persona, another of Jung's concept. Persona is an ideal aspect of ourselves that we present to the outside world. The tower can also be seen as a suggestion of fortification that had something to do with Jung's desire for safety and security. There are several other house features that go in this direction. For example, the veranda was separated from the dining room by a bolted iron door. Jung wanted the window recesses in the dining room to be extremely deep. He also insisted that the windows not be made too large. Was Jung worried about something in particular, which made him want to create a fortress of a house? As it turns out, in 1916, the house was assaulted by another kind of force. In 1916, Jung felt an urge to give shape to something. As we now know, that something will become seven sermons to the dead. But it began with a restlessness, with an ominous atmosphere that invaded the house, as if Jung's house became haunted. He said, My elder's daughter saw a white figure passing through the room. My second daughter, independently of her elder sister, related that twice in the night her blanket had been snatched away. And that same night my nine-year-old son had an anxiety dream. Around five o'clock in the afternoon on Sunday, the front door bell began ringing frantically. The atmosphere was thick. The whole house was filled, crammed full of spirits. The atmosphere cleared and the haunting was over only once Jung finished writing what he had to write three days later. This is just one of the episodes describing Jung's confrontations with the unconscious as presented in Memories, Dreams, Reflections. And it's interesting that the house has an important grounding function to play in this period of Jung's life. Enumerating the things that anchor him to this world, he wrote, I have a medical diploma from a Swiss university. I must help my patients. I have a wife and five children. I live at 228 Seestrasse in Kusnacht. These were the actualities which made demands upon me and proved to me again and again that I really existed that I was not a blank page whirling about in the winds of the spirit. A blank page whirling about in the winds of the spirit. It's a very powerful image Jung is giving here. A blank page refers to substance or to a contribution. Whirling is a kind of uncontrollable, unattached, even purposeless movement in the air, far from the ground. Winds of the Spirit is the breath of God. A blank page whirling about in the winds of the Spirit. 
This can be an image of psychosis. Jung's house is not your typical museum. It's still a home for Jung's grandson Andreas Jung and his family. It is also headquarters for the foundation that was established in 2002 to look after the property. So unaccompanied guests are allowed to visit only the gardens and the ground floor of the house, which includes a large dining room and a veranda. And then they are escorted by a guide to visit the library and the consulting room upstairs. The rest of the house is reserved for the family. This produces a feeling of truly being invited at the Jungs, in a house that still keeps its mysteries. The tour was over. After a passage by the kitchen, which is also a bookstore, I picked up my coat in the locker and stepped outside. The front entrance of the house was now in a shadow, since the low winter sun was on the other side. I was one of the last visitors to leave. As I took the driveway, I turned around to look one more time at the fairy tale castle from a sepia tone photograph. In the chapter Life After Death, Jung tells a dream he had after a serious illness in 1944. In the dream, Jung was on a hiking trip and he came to a small sideway chapel. The door was open, so he walked in. He saw a beautiful flower arrangement on an altar and a yogi with closed eyes sitting in deep meditation. Jung was frightened when he realized that the yogi had Jung's face. He understood that the yogi was meditating him and that Jung's life would be over when the yogi opens his eyes. Jung died in 1961, but his ideas, like his house, live on. I am grateful to the foundation for the fact that we can visit it. What struck me most on this visit was the sense of grounding that Jung might have had with it. Somehow, in my imagination, it appeared as a solid foundation, a center for Jung to do his work from and a place to come back to from his journeys to the depths of the psyche. Please visit imageispsyche.com where you will find show notes with links to sources mentioned in this episode.